I'm Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. All right. I'm so excited for today's episode. Yeah, you've been planning this one for a couple weeks now. Yeah, I actually, I don't know, I woke up. This happens sometimes with a pod. I wake up and I have an idea and I just write the whole, sometimes we don't write anything. Yeah. (laughs) We just talk. Uh, but sometimes I like write everything, like I just have it in my mind, um, something that I really want to talk about. And, and, this, and is one of those. this is one of those. Yeah. So I, I really want to spend some time talking about sustainability for the herbal community and like some new thoughts around, not new thoughts, but some of my thoughts around what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe not quite as necessary this topic as with other ones, but <laughs> just for consistency, we're going to give you our reclaimer here. Yes. Which is to say that we are not doctors. We're herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas discussed in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the United States. So these discussions are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different. So the things that we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but we hope that they'll give you some good information to think about and to research further. And we wish to remind you that good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision when considering any course of therapy, whether it's been discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is actually yours. Yes. Always. Yes. All right. Cool. So yeah, let's talk about sustainability. And let's, uh, where do you want to start? Well, uh, you know, there there are, when we say sustainability for herbalists, um, different thoughts come to mind. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not one thing. Right. <laughs> it's not one act. It's not even one realm. There are different um, uh, areas of, of practice turns up in. Yeah. Yeah. So we might think about like the oxygen mask analogy that as an herbalist, you need to make sure that you're not caring so much for others that there's nothing left for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really important factor in sustainable herbalism in terms of our own selves. Yeah, I mean, you know, herbal practitioners are prone to burnout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just like anybody else who's who's in a service profession. Yeah, or you know? a, like uh, professional caring, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's not what I want to talk about today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some other time, though, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, another th- place where we might be thinking about sustainability is from a social perspective. So even if the herbs that you're working with are organically cultivated... Um, are the people who are doing the labor uh, to do that organic cultivation, are they being adequately compensated and... Um, abundantly compensated. Abundantly compensated, <laughs> yeah, appropriately yeah. compensated. Yeah. Um, and in the places where this work is being done by migrant migrant and immigrant workers, are these people safe? Yeah. You know, are it's not even just like, did they make a lot of money, but they're not really safe, right. you know, like... Yeah. So that is a really important issue around sustainability. Right. Yeah. And that's that's a, a discussion that's really, really critical in, in all elements of sustainability. When people talk about, uh, you know, the question is always like, well, did they put pesticides on it? And yeah, that's relevant. <laughs> that's yeah. For sure. For sure. Right. Yeah. You know, what, how did they fertilize and everything? It's super important. But also like. Who are the people who are doing the actual manual work? Yeah. Who literally have touched your food. And I, I know that that concept even grosses some people out, but I find it uh, like beautiful that 
especially with strawberries or, you know, all different kinds of sort of more fragile um, produce that can't be machine harvested and that are actually harvested by hand. Mm -hmm. The idea that there is a, a living person who, who with their hands got this food for me, I find that to be an amazing connection and, and really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, in that regard, probably the, the place to start is to think about the difference between like, we talk about farmers a lot, you know, we're in election year right now, so there's, <laughs> there's lots of talk about supporting our farmers and mm -hmm. are the tariffs good or bad for them and this and that. Um, but, you know, uh, one thing that was kind of illuminating for me was when um, probably Sarah Tabor on Twitter was yeah. commenting about how, like, farmer in this context is sort of equivalent to CEO. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's not to, like, the person on the ground doing the work. Right. Um, and, you know, it may have been in the family for a long time, and there can be ties to the ground in that way and the land in that way, but... Um, it's a really different proposition when you're talking about workers' rights than when you're talking about support our farmers. Right. Know? And I mean, so, here in New England, we have a lot of really small-scale family farms, and that's one true, thing. And when true. we are talking about that, then when we say farmer, we, the person who owns the property or who might be renting that property is more likely more likely in, to be the person with the dirt under their fingernails. In this part of the country, yeah. Yeah, yeah but yeah. that is not universally true. And politically, when we talk about farmers, right. TM then it is so much more commonly yeah more common that what we are really referring to whether we understand that as individuals or not is like ceo right yeah and it's and it's like the difference between you know um uh supporting supporting farm workers or supporting farm humans in general by like making subsidies for ethanol as opposed to like actually providing the material needs of the living breathing yeah. thing you know very very different so yeah, so that they can have a living wage and can you know be safe as yeah. as individuals and things yeah. like that yeah so yeah when we're thinking about sustaining the in this case the the availability of herbs or or uh, herbs as they as they show up in our modern world those are things we need to think about too right yeah yeah but today. that's not what I want to talk about today. <laughs> today, yeah. 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 Today, what I really want to talk about is um, more the direct sustainability of the plants themselves and all the ways that we can, we, the herbal community, can be getting more and more interested in herbalism without completely exhausting our plants and our soil. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that a little sort of preamble story time might be handy here. Um, it's worth noting that the first plant that we know of to have gone extinct was the giant fennel plant, uh, which was harvested to extinction in the third or the second century BCE. And the reason that we usually hear uh, for this is that it was considered a contraceptive plant at the time. So I think that this story is really important because it has not just parallels to today's situation, but actual like exact replicas that are happening today. History, man. It repeats yeah, itself. Right, right. <laughs> you know, you learn from it or you repeat the same mistake. Uh, you yeah. Learn, you know? So yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this was a plant that had lots of different reported medicinal actions. Um, it was also a food and a fodder plant. Um, fodder is like you feed it to your animals. To your animals. Yeah. yeah. And so when you dig into what we can piece together of the story, which is a very interesting thing to do, uh, it goes like this. The plant was depended on for food and fodder and uh, also 
also for, for medicine. And so it was actively cultivated. And in this case, when I say cultivated, I really mean more like encouraged or maybe as far as even stewarded. Tended, at, yeah. yeah, as opposed to farmed. Um, mm. It was not like there weren't rows of this plant. Um, so in areas where this was the case, there was a lot of soil depletion and ultimately poor soil conditions made it hard for the plant to survive. So additionally, then on top of that, at some point, rumors about contraceptive actions of the plant turned, um, you know, gave it its 15 minutes of trendiness, you know, like 15 minutes of fame, whatever, turned it into like a, a phenomenon, like everybody had to have it. And at that point, it was already in trouble. And at that point, it was then harvested to extinction. So as a tangent... Um, I do think that it's worth noting here that I have never seen credible cases of any plant functioning in a contraceptive way. There is a lot of urban legend out there. Um, and even people attempting to prove that some plants can do this. Um, all of the stuff that I have looked at, all of the, all of the everything, I've spent a lot of time on this and for, for my money, none of it passes muster. It is a huge issue. I've published quite a bit um, about this in Plant Healer Magazine, and um, I will do a huge update on all that, that uh, coming up in the Reproductive Health online course. Right, because there's lots of nuance to this. There, there is a lot of nuance, um, but I just, I, especially in the context of this story, I just want to note that um, plants are not like that's not necessarily what they're trying to do. So this is a super complex topic. Um, but the, the ultimate bottom line here is that whether or not whether the or not, plant yeah. actually performed this action is less relevant than the fact that people believed that it did and they wanted it, which is fair. Like contraception is mm -hmm. it changes lives. So I, yeah. I, I support that they wanted it. This is, this is, worth really thinking about too because the the central concept here is that um things plants uh animals for that matter can become at risk uh w whether they do a job whether yes. they perform a, a function <laughs> for medicine or for whatever else or not they can still become at risk because of that i'm thinking here of like rhinoceros horn being ground to powder and then taken as a virility supplement yes because it'll make you to, you know your manliness or literal, more manly. literal like i breaks my heart but like literal powdered tiger penis and all this oh yeah. god you know and and with plants too the same kind of thing like uh it, humans have never been exempt from uh well i guess marketing would be part of it and fads mm -hmm. and trends and stuff like that yeah. and that's... and also our, like urban legend like right. that's been with us forever too it like uh marketing mythology like mm -hmm. all of that stuff has always been here yeah i mean now we're saturated in it 24 mm -hmm. 7 and from every like all the different screens in the room are trying to blur them at you all the time but it's always been the case that people could uh, hear about a mysterious thing from somewhere else and come to covet it very highly and go to extreme lengths to access it mm -hmm. and uh, you know uh none of that necessarily correlates with reality but yeah but it does lead to real world consequences yeah and, absolutely yeah so, so again, what we're, what we're seeing in, in the case of this particular plant is poor soil quality, plus degrading growing conditions, plus over harvesting, and then on top of it, plus trendiness. And all of those things together lead to extinction, right? An enormous sustainability problem. 
So as herbalism in the United States grows, and it's really important to truly understand the the actual literal explosion of herbal interest in this country over the past few decades. And I feel like, honestly, there is no word that I can really use to make clear how fast this field is growing just over the last 20 and 30 years. So um, if you are new to herbalism and you haven't been watching this happen over the over the past several decades, then just think about whatever is the fastest growing, most explosion-y thing that you can possibly think of. And then like maybe think about it even a little bit bigger. And that's herbalism in this country right now. So even though where you are, you might be the only herbalist that you know, um, and so it might be hard to kind of imagine that this is literal explosive growth. Um, it is literal explosive growth. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a report put out every year by Herbalgram. And um, I'll, I'll put the link to the one for 2018 um, in the show notes here because that was the, the last one that came out so far. But I've been following this for the past like four or five years. And, you know, the one for 2018 reports... Uh, Overall, herbal supplement sales increased by 9.4% um, over the previous year. Um, and it's been, in in the ones that I can recall and that I've seen, it's been numbers like that. It's been 10 13% increase year over year. And that's pretty much been going on, as far as I can tell, since at least the, the late 90s. Right. Um, well, so. <laughs> if, if over a decade, every year you have a 10% increase, uh-huh. you had a 100% increase at the end of the decade. Probably more than that, but, but yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's enormous, yeah. And, um, you know, the the current um, uh, market share overall is something around like $9 billion mm-hmm. um, just in the U.S. here, so... Yeah. And we're not even a large market, actually. Comparatively, to, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, today, I want to kind of focus on our own hands and so i am thinking about locally but just to think about like scale wise we are not right we're not even a large market yeah but if we say over the past 30 years sales of herbal products have increased by three or four hundred percent that sounds a lot like a lot if we say over the past year it increased by ten percent it doesn't sound like that much so yeah but those numbers are the same numbers just on a different yeah i mean so it's it's hard to wrap your mind around, really. And it's also kind of hard to wrap your mind around the difference in the market now versus 30 years ago, right? Yeah. And this is true even for our kind of herbalism, right? And this is not, <laughs> not like bottles of supplements on the shelf, but... Uh, but actual whole plants. People wanting to yeah. learn and make their own teas and tinctures and mm-hmm. do it at home. And so then there's, there's more market for raw herbal, uh, you know, stuff we put in our jars, right? Yeah. <laughs> the cotton yeah. sifted plants and everything. And so... Um, you know, I, I wonder if uh, it would be interesting to talk to somebody from Mountain Rose who had been there since they got started. I mean, I've been buying herbs at Mountain Rose almost that long. Yeah, then, yeah. And literally, it was a couple of people. Yeah. It's not a ton of people now, but right. it was literally like three people. Yeah. And and watching that grow over the years has been... Yeah. And even even in my um, my career as an herbalist over the past like 10, 11 years the number of local herb farms and suppliers and herbal product makers and yes. everything is just boom, exploding. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we see, we see that at Herbstock every year. Right? Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Herbstock our... is our local um, herb conference and uh, it's really exciting. And, and, and it is 
explosive. It's packed to the gills, man. It's packed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So all this is really, really exciting. Like that, that's the first thing is to say, yay! Like it's really exciting. But it's also a problem for sustainability. And what that means is that it's no longer enough for teachers to say, you can pick one third for you and leave one third for the animals and leave one third for regeneration. That's what was being taught 20 and 30 years ago. And honestly, I think a lot of today's teachers are still saying that simply because that's what they were taught. Yeah. You know, like if you come across a stand of nettles, you can take a third, leave a third for the animals and leave a third to go to seed. It's appealing, right? It's it's very simple. It's very Mm -hmm. easy to hold that in your mind. It feels like a sort of undying, unchanging principle that has probably always been true. But I don't even know if it was always true. I know, right? I'm just saying <laughs> like, it, it, it like feels that way. Like, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, a third, a third, a third. That's great. That's that's perfect. Yeah. Things yeah. in nature come in threes. Sure. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I think that um, I think that that was something, you, you know, it might be something literally that Rosemary made up <laughs> and as her own personal guideline for harvesting in her own area where she was. Yeah. And now it's fairly ubiquitous. And, you know, our elders in that, in that um, time period, their ideas spread much further than we may think because, mm. because they were like the vector. They were the ones who put out so much information. And that's, that's great. We owe them a great debt oh, yeah. um, for, the, for the revitalizing that they did. But, um, but also it's important to sort of just update those things and to, and to call them into question. And so right now, um, that is something that I think we need to be calling into question. Whether you ever heard that one third, one third, one third, um, maybe your headquarters or something. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe like whatever you were taught about sustainably wildcrafting, it doesn't have to have been that particular guideline, but any of the guidelines that you were taught, I think right now is a really good time to just call those into question and and reevaluate them and say, do do these guidelines still apply to the to the current state? And that doesn't mean that the people who taught you that were wrong or bad. Right. It just means that things are changing very quickly. The planet is changing and the popularity is changing and those two things like the planet is sort of like um having less sustainability and the popularity is growing more and more so we're in that giant federal place where like it's harder and harder on the plant populations and we are demanding more and more and so this and and even every year is an important time to be reevaluating what what is sustainable um what does that mean yeah and also, one thought here is that um, that has been helpful for me is to recognize that being sustainable is in no way the same thing as being unchanging, right? So again, if we think about a particular stand of plants out there in the in the woods or in the fields or whatever, um, in order for that to be sustainable, a plant population might actually need a larger stand next year than the one it occupies this year in order to survive, you know, the next decade, the next century, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> However far forward we can project in time. Especially if you're on land that's reasonably new to you, um, because you don't know. If you haven't been there for 10 years, 20 years, honestly, 100 years, like, because because the world is changing so fast right now, if you haven't been there for some larger period of time, you don't really know 
what this year's stand is an example of. Was yeah. this a hard year? Is this is this meager in comparison to previous years? Till you've really watched it for a long time, you you don't actually know how healthy that patch of nettle actually is. Yeah. So yeah, it might it might be that in order to sustain it, you not only can't harvest any of it right now, but in fact you need to do something to make sure that that patch help it grow doubles, spread, triples, spread some seeds, yeah. water it, you know, bring it help. Yeah, yeah, yeah that might be part of it too. Sure. And then another thought is here is that like sustainability is an important goal and that's true, but it's not the only goal, right? Um, we can consider the difference between um, sustainable agriculture and a more recent concept of regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, the question there is, would it really be acceptable if we altered our current production methods like just enough to sustain the status quo? No, that's no. not enough. We can do better than no. that, right? We can, yeah. do, we can do a lot better than that. And, you know, for me, when I think of the word sustainable, that the actual definition of sustainable to me is regenerative. Yeah. And that is not... Because you're, you're thinking... That's not true everywhere. It's sort of... I mean, it's at the most basic level, it's thinking past the next harvest. Right. Right? So sustainable is like, can I accomplish next time what I've done this time? And that's good. But... Regenerative is like, how can I make sure that that continues to be true as far forward as we can project? And how can we feed into these these nourishment cycles? Yeah, so that we are not just nourishing ourselves, but we are also nourishing our soils. And we can also recognize not just, oh, we need to sustain what we're doing, but hey, what we're doing is significantly diminished because soil has been depleted over decades. So... Every year, I need to not just be sustaining where I'm at right now, but I actually need to be putting back. Like, you know, you invest in your business or you invest in your education or whatever. We need to be investing in the soil with our practices. And why this matters, one one reason is to consider like, okay, imagine you've got on one hand extractive practices that are going to draw down the reserves of nutrients and everything that's necessary in the soil over time extractive right and then you have sustainable which is like we pull some stuff out we put some stuff back in it all balances out over time Mm. right regenerative is like we do harvest some things but we put more capacity more more life more earth (laughs) into the earth right so that it can keep that going and that that's important because if we stay in that middle place where we balance what we take out with what we put in that's good uh, if everything else stays the same. And we know it's not going to, not right? Going we to. know that climate is changing, weather patterns are changing, water patterns are changing, so you need to build extra resilience into the system to account for what you know is coming. Yeah. And and then also for what you don't know, <laughs> because there's always that. Yeah. I feel like I want to go back and every every time that I said sustainable, <laughs> just every, every time sustainable comes up, just that's regenerative. It's yeah. just... It, if we all just start thinking that the only thing that is sustainable is regenerative, right. then then every time that like we're taught, because sustainable has become a buzzword too. And that's yeah. okay. That's yeah. good it's, that we're talking about it. Right. But so as long as we all agree that the only thing that is in, te- in, in fact sustainable is regeneration. Yeah. Let's just expand our definition there. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That'll do it. All right. Well, all right. So basically what I'm saying here, and and I think this also feeds right into that regeneration idea, is that we need to be actively, and by that I mean really actively, <laughs> like really, really actively thinking about our impact on the plant population 
and on soil health. And every time we purchase an herbal product, whether that is like a pound of nettle, dried nettle leaves or a thing in capsules or anything in between, we need to be thinking, was this sustainably made? Was it regeneratively produced? And every time that we purchase herbs, we need to be thinking, how was this grown? And what is going on with the soil in the actual field where this came from? And what is going on with the people? And what is going on with like everything about how I got this plant? Yeah, okay, maybe you don't have time to grow your own plants and that's totally all right. But we need to be active in, you know, like we spend a lot of time maybe searching for the best price and we think that that is a good use of our time. Um, And so let's redirect that and say that a good use of our time is determining how was this plant grown and a lot of times you know because we're gluten-free and dairy-free and whatever and a lot of times people will say uh well how do you really know that that was produced in a certain way and i say i call the manufacturer and i talk to them and it amazes me how many times people are just shocked and they're like what every time do you do that for every product yeah i do I do that so often. I mean, okay, once I've talked to one manufacturer, I don't call them every time I want to buy the same thing again. But, uh, but yeah, you got to know your farmer and you got to know your, if you're buying something from a larger manufacturer, then they're not any different than knowing your local people. You have to know them too. And you have to know what they're doing and whether or not they're trustworthy. And that is wicked inconvenient. But that's what I'm saying. I think that we need to be thinking about and, and then for that matter, every time that we want to go out and wild harvest, honestly, I am coming to believe that we shouldn't. We just shouldn't. I am seriously questioning right now whether or not plant populations, even plants who are not at risk, can handle the influx of people interested in plant medicines and who are thinking, oh, I can just go outside and get this for free. Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of the problem really is is the idea that uh if you didn't have to pay another human some money to get something then that means it was free right. that is, that's not actually what the definition of free should should be if if rin was running the world <laughs> or at least the dictionary yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah and I, but i get emails about this all the time like oh well i can just go out and get that for free like literally that sentence i mean that's still not free it's yeah. not free like that soil paid for that. And by the way, that's a life you're taking. Like, it's okay. It, it's, I'm not saying that, oh, you're, you're take, well, you are taking life when you harvest nettles to make tea, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm not saying that that is necessarily bad. That is the relationship that we're all in. But I think that coming to that conclusion and coming to a place where I spent a lot of time thinking about the life of a plant and the reality that every cup of tea is the life of a plant, that changed a lot about how I thought about working with plants. That is when I really started thinking about, hey, I, I don't want to be using plants. This is a life. Mm. And and I want to be worth my plants, but I also want to be making sure that I'm only taking what I need and making sure that I am like, uh, that was like kind of the beginning of the rabbit hole of of all of the things that, that we're talking about now. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's a gradient to it, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I know this isn't about guilt. It's just about like, Oh, you know, like there, 
we live in a busy society and this kind of stuff is really inconvenient and but but we do inconvenient things because our society places value on it. We shop for sales because our society places value on that. And so what I'm proposing is that shopping for sustainability and shopping for regenerability, that, that's not even a word, let's place value on that. Let's place the same kind of value on that that we would uh, for, hey, I got a good deal, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this kind of thinking is inconvenient, <laughs> yeah. right? We're not used to it or taught to do it in, in particular. Um, kind of taught to just, you know, you work hard, you make money, you go buy whatever you want. You don't have to think about it too much further than that. Um, and I mean, it's been that way. It's changing now. You know, you see people thinking about this, yeah. talking about it. No, you see younger I... people who are kind of more attuned to these ideas, swimming in it already. The The funny thing is that like this idea of I can just get what I want. Um, I can have strawberries in December. I can have a new car. I can whatever. And when I'm done with it, I'll just throw it away. Or when it breaks, I'll just get a new one. All that kind of stuff. That's the culture that we live in right now. But it's not real. You know, like this stuff. My grandparents didn't live this way. My parents weren't really raised that way. This happened in my parents' lifetime, you know? Like, it used to be that everybody fixed the stuff they had and everybody patched their clothes and everybody repaired their stuff and then handed stuff down and things were reused 10 million times and, oh, it's time to get a new handle onto that and, you know, like, whatever. That is, like almost all of human history, there's just this one little interruption, this one little blink of basically, you know, that started in in the boomers time frame. I'm not like saying it's all the boomers fault, but but like in that time frame, um, that's when this idea of disposability happened. And by the way, that happened intentionally like that. The planned obsolescence, that's intentional. And and this cultural habit of thinking I can just get a new one, that was intentionally done by corporations who wanted you to buy another thing. Yeah. They didn't want your things to last forever because they wanted your money. Mm. So, 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 I mean, it's I mean, good to recognize that that doesn't only, that, that, that the forces that that has unleashed uh, <laughs> did not, did not remain inside consumer goods. Yeah. They've affected our relationship to everything. So, um, yes, that is exactly like it, like those ideas permeated society. Yeah. And so, if you have those ideas, that doesn't make you bad. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make you, you know, it's it just is. It's like, what else were you supposed to think that that's what was what we were all swimming in? But um, but then this is the opportunity to just question that and say, hold on a second. I can't, I don't think we can think that way anymore. We tried that for a minute and a lot of corporations got really rich, but I don't think that's working out. And I think we need to do something different. Yeah. So it's habit change. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and of course we would frame it that way. Cause that's how we frame basically everything. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and, and here, just like learning how to change your habits around food or around sleep or around movement or whatever else, it's the same basic process, right? It's uncomfortable for a little while. You do it. You recognize that it's 
it's uh, better for you, for your health, or for, for the world, reasons. or for reasons. Yeah. And now it becomes normal for you. It becomes something that you just do, right? Because yeah. It becomes your new habit, and then it's, it's, it's like this is important. You never really get to stop thinking about anything, whether it's food or whether it's sustainability. Mm-hmm. But once you start to introduce some new habits, they start to become second nature, and they require less computational cycle per minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and then that allows you to expand to a new horizon or the next level or whatever else, however you want to frame it. You know, it's like uh, if you have a daily tea habit, if there was a time that you didn't have that and then you were like, oh, I'd like to get interested in herbalism and like, oh, I'd like to drink tea every day because I think that would be good for my body. That took that took effort. You had to like make the time in your day to do that. And you had to remember every morning to do it and, and whatever. And it, so this isn't really any different than that. This idea of like thinking differently about the criteria that we use to buy things yeah, really. And the criteria that we use to tell us, is this okay in terms of like going out and working with wild plants? We already have criteria we already have them. It might be, in terms of wildcrafting, the criteria might be, is this plant in bloom? Or does it look healthy? Or, or were the bugs eating it? Or whatever. Um, so you, like, the criteria already exists. And that is kind of exciting because it means that we're not, like, starting from complete scratch. It yeah. just means that we're either adding to our criteria or modifying our criteria. Um, so it's not impossible. It's just that it's got to be intentional. We have to, we have to think about it. And I think also that um, we have to be compassionate about it because it's not just that we've been taught to seek convenience and it's not just that we've been taught that planned obsolescence is important and buying more stuff is important. Those are all one side of things. But the other side of that is that we live in a culture that leaves us very little time for inconvenience. We buy pre-shredded carrots because frankly, we don't have time to shred carrots. And some people have the privilege to live a life that allows them that time, but a lot of people don't. And I'm not judging anybody who buys a pre-shredded bag of carrots. Like, you do what you got to do to get vegetables into you. And so if we can recognize that we are not living in a world that values this kind of thinking and that this kind of thinking will take more time, then we can also sort of cut ourselves some slack. We can look for like, okay, well, who can I trust? And I'll just do what they're doing for now. And Mm -hmm. then slowly I will chip away at learning for myself or deciding for myself that they also made good choices. But in the meantime, I will choose a, a person or a group or whatever who has really good regenerative practices. And I'll just accept their practices because I accept that I don't have time to research every single thing right now and I need to be compassionate in, in doing this work. So I guess, you know, there are ways that we can cut ourselves slack on this and not, I don't want this to be a huge, awful burden, but I, but like it's worth, it's work that we have to do yeah. and not all, even if work is burdensome, sometimes it's important and valid Still and good. Necessary. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, all right, so here are some things to think about um, around these these ideas about sustainability and herbalism, sustainability of the actual living plants in the ground. Yeah. 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 Um, and the first one uh, is maybe to think about when you're buying herbs, 
to first of all um, recalibrate a little bit around yeah. that. And we're seeing this happening, I think, in the last few years especially, um, but I expect this to continue where there have been some some herbal price shocks, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? There's been some times when you, I've been going to place an order uh, at the herb supplier and I'm like, wow, that herb is three times as expensive as it was last time I got some. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we're advocating for here is to train yourself to not respond with, ugh, I'm going somewhere else that I can get the cheaper one, mm-hmm. but instead to say, huh, I wonder why that happened, and I wonder if this is actually more of an equitable price for all of the people involved mm-hmm. and for the plants themselves. Yeah. You know, sometimes it is as simple as, as we have more herb farmers here locally in the U.S., and as suppliers are trying to source things locally more frequently, because because that is what the herbal community wants, mm-hmm. um, that the prices have to change because a living wage in the U.S. is different than a living wage in a place where where they might have been sourcing that uh, previously. So it could be something as simple as that. Um, and I'm I'm obviously like, if it's just somebody saying, "Oh, I can make a huge profit here. I'm just going to charge a ton more." Like I'm not saying, That's something else. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, you know, a reputable supplier. I'm thinking about Mountain Rose, for example. That's that's not what's going on for them. And so if suddenly the price changes uh, or if there's an herb that's expensive, like linden, for example, and then we think, oh, well, that's terrible. Why is it so expensive? And and just sort of catch that thought and think, oh, well, hold on a second. Those flowers come from trees. It's sort and of like it's... like ask the question sincerely. Why yeah, is it like so why expensive? is it so expensive? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, there could be really good reasons for it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and then the very first of all of them is that herb farming is really difficult. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, yeah, they're it, called specialty crops for a reason. Yeah, well, <laughs> any farming like it's hard to grow things, yeah. and these are skills, and you have to gain them over time, and um, it's. Yeah. It's long work. It is hard work. Most of our small farmers in the U.S. have to work two jobs. The farm is um, often their side gig. Often they can't survive from the money off the farm. Um, and, and, and given how much work it is, we need to be questioning as a society, do we want that? Like, hold on a second. You're already working really hard why would I expect that you should then work a second job just to stay afloat? Like, hmm. that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So this is sort of just um, like resetting your your internal, um, I don't know, wheels and dials <laughs> a yeah. little bit. So you can look at something like that and not feel affronted or not feel like, all right, well, my first instinct is to find the cheapest one available because that, that is not a great way to find sustainable herbs, right? right? You can go on Amazon, you can find super cheap plants from super sketchy places that you have no idea where they were grown and you probably aren't even going to be guaranteed to get what you ordered. <laughs> uh, but this is not a great way to support regenerative, sustainable herbalism in the world. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So kind of along with that um, is another one, that another experience you may have while you're browsing your favorite herb supplier um, mm-hmm. or even your local herb farm, what they have available, is that herbs aren't always available. Yes. And that's okay. Yes. That's, now, yeah. So um, definitely, again, I've had the experience of being like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
fill up all my empty jars on the shelf. I'm going to go and order everything, and I'm going to get it all from one spot. It's going to be, oh, they don't have that. Oh, they don't have that either? Oh, man. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, am I going to have to just wait? Am I going to order from several different places? Oh, I'm so stuck. <laughs> and to kind of grumble about it. Oh man, like every fall we get the <laughs> we get the emails about elderberries. Where can like, you find elderberries? Wait, everybody's out of stock of elderberries. Well, yeah, it's fall. Like there's only so many of them. <laughs> like it's okay if everybody's out of stock. Right. Um and also elderberries are pretty elderberry like as a elder as a plant is not hard to grow, so you know. But but uh but if everybody's out of stock, then everybody's out of stock. That's okay. It's okay for you not to have the plant that you want right now. And boy, does that ever go against our ideas as <laughs> Americans, you know, like, yeah, no, I should be able to have anything I want. But listen, that too is new. Right. I'm 46. I'm almost 47 years old. And when I was a kid, we had three kinds of apples. You could have a Red Delicious, you could have a Granny Smith, or you could have a Macintosh. That was it. Those were your choices. Three apples. Three apples. And we did not have strawberries in December. That was not an option. And I lived in Texas. Like, that was not an option. So this idea that we can have anything we want, anytime we want, you guys, this happened in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, this is a habit that we can break. This isn't something that like, has always been true and now like it's it's very very new and if we put it in that perspective then we can be like all right yeah okay i don't get to have everything that i want that's totally fine and also it's great as herbalists when there's an herb that you really want that you can't have because that gives you an opportunity to learn other herbs who can do the same types of work. Oh yeah, yeah. Run, running really out excited. of things, running out of things is a great driver for creativity and herbal formulation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, absolutely. It, as we as we have been teaching over the years, what we find is that when we start to run out of things and the jars get empty. Uh, instead of rushing to make an herb order or instead of making our herb orders in such a way so that we never run out, we actually have found that there is great value in um, procrastinating in making the herb order because it teaches our students to work with herbs that they maybe are a little bit less comfortable with, maybe herbs that aren't their 100% favorite. It pushes them to grow um, and like oh yeah but i can't quite remember how to work you know and it yeah it really pushes them to learn more it pushes us to learn more yeah, yeah we've started in our uh in our exams um giving questions where it's like okay this is the kind of health problem you need to solve and this is the person who has it and so on and here's the list of herbs that you don't have available to you yeah <laughs> to yeah. try to like just take all of the first line responses and be like nope not available. Uh, yeah. the lung problem? Sorry, there's no thyme, there's no sage, there's no garlic. What are you going to do? No mullein either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really good. I, and even if you, like, if you're just, um, I don't know, an herbalist somewhere out in the world and you're not taking any of our classes and you don't even, like, whatever, this is a game you, you're, maybe you're not taking any classes. It doesn't even matter. This is a game that you can play all of the time. Anytime that you're making tea for a reason, uh, you can go ahead, make the tea that you want to make. That's totally fine. But in your head, you can be playing the game of, hmm, 
this is the reason I'm making this tea. What if I didn't have all of the herbs that I'm putting into this tea? What would I work yeah. with instead? Yeah. And if you just do that every time that you make a pot of tea, you're really pushing your uh, learning in a in a fantastic, fantastic way. Yeah. Nice. So this can be a this can be a way to make it fun and exciting. Also. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, another idea here is uh, maybe you should grow some herbs. Wait, hold on. Let me take the maybe out of that. You should grow some herbs. <laughs> and um, it does not matter if it is one basil plant, one catnip plant, whatever, in a pot on your windowsill. doesn't matter. Whatever it is, or if maybe you have enough land and you can put in a whole big, you know, like, uh, frankly... We had last year, last couple of years, we had a raised bed that was four by eight, which was not super expensive to put in. Um, and we had, the first year we did mostly vegetables in it, but this, at towards the end of that year, I noticed a lot of herbs seeding themselves like mugwort and evening primrose and um, some lady thumb and all kinds of different things were turning up in there there was one more that we got a real lot of but my point here is oh, that oh right yes yeah, yeah. yes yes rigor on and so the second year with that bed i did not plant any vegetables i had strawberries in there as as uh, perennials but other than that i didn't plant any vegetables at all and i just let the volunteers go bananas and we harvested pounds of mugwort and of evening primrose and of erigeron and these are three herbs that are really important to us yeah and it was just a four by eight raised bed you know yeah so you don't need a lot of space yeah a couple one point i would highlight on this is that um at least at least two of those so at least the evening primrose and the the erigeron or the the canadian fleabane those are herbs that are not super um, I don't want it. I don't know. Popular is the right word. Um, they're not easy to find in commerce. They're not like a. They're not like a part of the mainstay herbal herbs of modern American herbalism. Yeah. You know, they're not on the same level as like nettles and dandelion and right. burdock and and these. And ones. yet they're so amazing. Oh my! I, like, yeah. I can't even and, imagine. Right. I can't and, imagine not having them. <laughs> well, what would you do? Oh no! Yeah. Yeah. So, but. But for us, they've become really important as part of our, our personal herbal lives and, and part of our practice, too. Um, and we've really come to get to know them much better. And there was really no other way to accomplish that than to to grow them, to work with them consistently, to have them, have them around. And um, I think that you should not take away from this discussion that you should go and get some Canadian fleabane seeds and some evening primrose seeds to put into your raised bed, but that, uh, although that would be fine. I mean, yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> and I'm a big advocate for it, but maybe you also consider letting a spot grow, go wild and see what turns up there. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a thing that's not everybody's most favorite, best herb ever, uh, it could become yours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not going to know for a while. Yeah. So there's got to be that patience here too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, gardening is not easy. It's also not hard. It's, like it's the yeah. concept is easy. <laughs> right. It's the practice. Like knitting is easy too, like in concept, but it takes practice to be able to get like why are you looking at me I'm like that? I'm giving you a skeptical face. 
You learned to knit I for only, a minute. I, yeah. Well, it's true, right? Because I only spent about a total of two hours attempting. Right. And that's not enough time. Like, you uh, you <laughs> made the... You held the two needles and you made the loops and they, they moved and you did the stuff. But, like, hey, I just finished this lovely scarf and I'm very excited about it. It's gorgeous. Um, and you you can't do this. Okay? But you could... You it's not it, anything yeah. like everything that you learned in those two hours is literally the only thing you need to know to have done this. <laughs> you just didn't. Yeah. And <laughs> I really want people to think that way about gardening. Um, people ask us if we're going to make a course about gardening. And typically the answer is basically no, like a little bit. I'm going to put some more stuff together, but also basically no, because the Stuff about gardening is not hard. You need good dirt. You need the right amount of sun. You need the right amount of water. What is the definition of those things? It depends entirely on the plants you're growing and where you're located and what kind of year you're having and uh, what kind of pot are you planting in and what kind of good dirt do you have. And you're not going to know that stuff unless you just try it. And I think that, you know... Our society is really wound up in, I need to do it right. I need to know the right way and then to do it the right way. And the right way is to just do it. Just put some seeds in some dirt or you don't have to start from seeds. Get a plant and and try it. And um, if you are a person who feels a lot of fear around keeping a plant alive, then start with pothos, which is not a plant that you can consume. Um, yeah, it's, it's this plant that I have everywhere. I, I have a very large tattoo of it even. <laughs> um, I think that pothos is an amazing um, plant that really wants to remind us that we need to be in relationship with plants. And the reason that I say that is that Pothos will grow indoors. It will grow with very little light. It will, it comes to us. And if you're worried about like, what if I don't water it or whatever else, pothos can be thirsty for a really long time. And it can be giving you the message that it's thirsty for a really long time. So you have the opportunity to learn what a thirsty plant looks like, because it's going to give you a long window of like, um, opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good friend that way. Yeah. For sure. So, yeah. so that is my, that is my suggestion. Just try something, just, just try it. And if it works out great, if it doesn't work out great, keep notes, you know? Um, and then you don't even have to buy books. You can just Google, um, because there's plenty of information on the internet about gardening and it's, it's sufficient really. Um, and, and try different things. Try things that are not what's written out there. Try not weeding your garden. Try, um, yeah, try all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. I we're, guess... we're thinking here kind of, um, especially on like personal scale, if you were setting yourself up and you want to, you know, take 10 acres of, of land that you happen to, to yes. steward and turn that into a big organic herb farm, you should probably get some, some training yeah. before you before you embark on that yes, and just start yes, tearing yes. everything up um that would be more respectful to the land you know so, yeah, yeah yeah you know if you did want to get a book uh one that is pretty great is uh the organic medicine medicinal herb farmer which is by jeff and melanie carpenter um 
And this uh, th- this book, I mean, they are a large-scale herb farm. It's yeah. Zach Woods' far- herb farm. Yeah, this book is not so much oriented towards, I want to get one raised bed in my backyard. Like, there's... <laughs> yeah. This is, this is like, if you're going big. Yeah. Yeah. But but really, if you if you are learning to garden for yourself, the number one most important thing is spend time with it. Just look at it. Look at it every day. Go outside and just look at it. Mm-hmm. And today you will see the plants looking one way. Tomorrow you'll see them looking a different way. The day after that, you'll be like, hold on, you're kind of wilty. Are you thirsty? And look at what it looks like after a rainstorm and look at what it looks like all the different times. It is literally just like, how do you learn how to be a friend? How do you, you hang out with the person you want to be a friend with and you try stuff and you bake them a cupcake and you find out they don't like chocolate and you like, whatever. (laughs) It is the same thing with gardening. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And and of course, it's it's very much like herbalism in that there's infinite complexity if you choose to pursue it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and the more you do that, the more you, you start to realize the things that, that you know you know and you don't know you don't know and all, all of that kind of thing, <laughs> right? Um, and one thing that emerges is that you start to recognize uh, the skill involved in all the different aspects of this, including physical things like how do you twist it off and chop the stem and how do you get the most good stuff and like have that all available to you and uh that can give you some uh some more connection to those people who are bringing all of the food yeah from the field to your door right farm workers yeah recognizing that the skills that they have um to create food to grow food and to get it to you yeah those are like that's not menial work and we often refer to it that way in our culture it is highly skilled labor it is a different skill set yeah but it's every bit as skilled as a computer engineer or a lawyer or whatever yeah you can see that if you i I think i must have seen a video like this where it's like a side-by-side comparison of like um you know somebody going to like pick your own blueberry farm and like okay i get a blueberry and it takes like three hours to fill a bucket and then somebody who does that all day every day and they're just gone it's it's incredible so yeah and i mean we're we're very kind of attuned to thinking about physical skills and like the the little movements and training and how much time it takes to get graceful at something like that yes um so that that strikes our our eye really really brightly but um yeah we're just gonna share our appreciation there for you yeah (laughs) okay all right so the last thing that i want to think about here is that um, maybe you shouldn't wild harvest and that might sound like, what do you mean? Wild crafting is a part of our herbal, our herbal tradition. It's a, like, well, yeah. I'm not a real herbalist if I don't yeah. <clears throat> gather most of my own plants. I think that, you know, you should be in relationship with, with plants in the wild, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's okay anymore to go and harvest them. Or it might not be okay to do it in ways that we've done it in the past. So if you're going to go wild harvest, um, maybe we should change our thinking around that. And instead of wild harvesting, to be stewarding and not to harvest plants from a particular piece of land until we've spent, I would say, at least five years getting to know that land so that you can understand Am I seeing what is what I'm seeing right now? A healthy community of plants, or 
or do I not realize that this community of plants is actually struggling? Mm. You can't know that unless you're watching for a long time. And when we think about things in terms of stewardship, like wild stewardship instead of wild harvesting or wild crafting, then, then we're also thinking about how do I serve these plants, right? How do I nurture these plants? Not just how do I take these plants with yeah. the emphasis on harvest, right? but how do I serve these plants, mm -hmm. right? Do I visit these plants all year round, even, even in the winter? Right. Um, you know, and again, some of this is about uh, reevaluating some, some traditions or some practices that have been handed down around this. Um, one that is very common in the herbal world has to do with tobacco. Mm. And um, this is this is something that has been, I think, in many cases, it's fair to say, appropriated um, as a as a practice uh, adopted from Native American traditions. Uh, the Native Americans who lived around tobacco, most mm -hmm. specifically, because that's certainly not everyone. Yeah, of them. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it's not at all uncommon in herb schools around America today for somebody to tell you that if you bring a pinch of tobacco and leave it at the plant after harvesting then now you're in right relation and you've done, you've done your, your job. And that's the end of the story. Um, so in no, to no degree do I want to diminish the importance of that as an actual tradition for the people for whom it is their, their practice. Uh, but I am also not in any way convinced that that's the whole story there. Uh, certainly not <clears throat> for people to, for whom that is a traditional practice. Right. That might be what they do on the actual day that they cut a leaf from that plant, but that is not the way that, that they were in relationship over the long term with that plant. Right. And so like other cases of, of appropriation, a large part of the problem here is is looking at one act or one object and saying like, that's the story and I've got it. Mm -hmm. And now I can have that and it's and I can give that or take that to other people or something else. And, yeah. you know, there's there's so much <laughs> so much privilege and uh, and problem bound up in that. But yeah. um, so I think bringing an offering to a plant when you harvest is a good idea, but I think that some plants would appreciate some water more than they would appreciate some dry tobacco. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, that truly s stewarding a population of plants means bringing them water regularly and especially during a drought, except this is wild land that we're, hypothetically talking about here, which means there's no garden hose, which means you're carrying water to this plant population on a regular basis in order to nurture it through a drought. And that's what I'm getting at here. Like, that's what I want us to be thinking about. What, when I say, what are we doing to steward the population of plants that we are in relationship with where one small part of that relationship is is it okay for me to harvest some portion of this this year? And always asking that over and over. That that harvest action is such a small part of the relationship and the larger relationship is, I want to know you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to see your needs and provide for you in the same way that you are providing for me. Yeah. And um, I, I think that that is not what's usually coming to mind for people when they wild harvest. And, and that has not always been the way that I have thought about wild harvesting. And there definitely has been times that I've been like in a place that isn't my own 
and, um, you know, like pulled over and saw a plant that was wonderful and then took some and then left and never came back again. And it was in a different state and like whatever. And so I'm, I don't, I'm not talking about this from a place of purity or from a place of like, oh, well, I always did it right. And I, you suckers. (laughs) No, no, not even. Um, But I, but these are the things that I want to be thinking about. And then I, I mean, even like water's heavy. So I even want to think about this from an accessible point of view. Like there, there will be people who cannot actually, um, perform yeah. that function. Yeah, please don't, please don't um, take that that concept as like this is what Rin and Katya think is necessary. Right, to, right. To, yeah, and yet, and yet, if you are a person because of disability or because of just just strength amount, like the amount of strength that you have or don't have or whatever, who cannot carry water over a distance to a particular plant or population that you would like to be in relationship with, that doesn't mean that you can't provide water for them. It just might mean that you can't be the one to carry it. And so mm-hmm. coordinating the stewardship of a particular piece of property and the, yeah. and the, and the protection of that property is just as important. Yeah. And so, uh, nobody wants to talk about politics, <laughs> but honestly, that's a place where you can make an impact, right? Yeah. Uh, you can you can call, you can write, you can contact people directly, you can hook up with advocacy groups that are doing this kind of work to preserve natural spaces, wild spaces, to bring wild uh, and green into places where it hasn't been or where it's been pushed away for a long time, mm-hmm. um, to do work to re-green the cities and to get, whether it's green rooftops or whether it's community gardens or all the different variations in between, like... There's a lot that can be done, and it doesn't all involve money. It doesn't all involve physical labor. Uh, but if if either of those is something you've got, then it totally can. Yeah. And if that's not what you've got, you've got something that you can offer to the plants. And it doesn't all have to be, uh, like, happening in the same moment, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking even of um, the herb stock project around Boston where... Um, Steph Zabel and the um, has gone around the city and talked to individual business owners um, and property owners about would you host a small um, like public garden? Maybe it's just like a little one by th- one foot by three foot planter in front of their shop. Um, would would you can we put this here and we'll provide you know because she she got people who would donate the plants and donate the dirt and donate the pots and whatever and so we'll provide the stuff and will you provide the awareness with your shop community and and the watering and all that stuff and even this is such a like the you don't even have to be involved in politics this is just community organizing so like even mm-hmm. if it's at the large scale is not um, the way that you work, even in a small way, this is a way that we are stewarding the plants and also like rebuilding our relationship with plants, especially in places, um, that are mostly concrete. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One other thought I had here is to, to recognize that all of this is occurring on a kind of a gradient and, um, there are there are many plants that you do want to be super cautious about harvesting. The more rare a plant is, the more at risk a plant is. Mm-hmm. Of course, the more you should be, you know, going through these thoughts and and these practices and considering. Well, maybe I shouldn't actually harvest at all. Um, but on the other side of the scale, you have things like like weeds and invasive plants. Big quoting marks around invasives. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, as always, but. Um, there's a lot uh, to be gained 
for all of us, I think, for the plant people, for the human people, um, to be looking at, at, at plants like this um, in places where they're, they're growing super abundantly um, and to reframe that not as like a threat or as a problem, but as an opportunity. And yeah, instead of pesticides, we can be looking at uh, plant populations that have been designated as invasive as abundant. And oh, well, that's something that I can harvest. Right. Um, right. With and a it, doesn't, less... it doesn't mean you're going to be thoughtless yeah. at all. Right. You're yeah. still going to be thinking about what are the impacts I'm having on this piece of ground. Um, but there's there's much more space there uh, to go in and to harvest and to, to work with those plants um, and to feel, you know, more comfortable and, and more like you're, you're not hurting a plant population that, that really needs more protection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we also think about there are some herbs that you can harvest without any harm to that plant, even the individual plant, let alone the population that it's a part of. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we harvest a lot of pine uh, needles because we yep. love fresh pine needle tea, you know, and uh, I have... We've never done that by climbing up. Well, I've climbed up a bunch you of pine trees. You climb up a lot of pine trees. But, <laughs> but it's never been like, I'm going to climb to the top and take the freshest green, new grown uh, needles right off of the top because clearly those are the best ones. I've, uh, I've never <laughs> pulled, I don't think, I've ever pulled we get them off pine the needles off of a tree. Yeah. yeah, you get them off the ground because white pine in a windstorm, branches will come down. And it's fine to pick them up off the ground, you guys. You're putting it in boiling water. So <laughs> if fine. there might be like a little germ on it from the ground, you're about to boil it. It's okay. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> you know? the pine has enough uh, antimicrobial power yeah, it does. to, to it take does. care of that. So, I mean, yeah, right? And this is, this is a, a good way to think about it, too. It's like, okay... Not all harvesting is equal, you know? Yeah. Um, if I if I clip a few flowers off of some chamomile during its growing, it's going to grow more flowers, mm-hmm. right? And I can, I can harvest some, and I can dry them, and I can have chamomile tea, and I can also leave the last round of flowers or a round of flowers to go to seed so that plant's able to regenerate itself mm-hmm. next year, right? Um, and this is one of the major things to think about whenever you're, you're considering wild crafting is like, well, what part of the plant is it that I'm gathering and what does that mean for that plant, for that stand, um, for the world, (laughs) you know, is there a (laughs) non-fatal way that I can harvest this plant? Like, um, if it's a plant that is an annual, I'm thinking about goldenrod because this is a plant that I, that we are in stewardship with, um, on our land in Royalston Mm -hmm. and have been for quite some time now. And so from any given plant, you know, there are many little stalks of flowers from any given plant. I only take one or two Mm -hmm. and that way every single plant still has the ability to reproduce. Yeah. Um, So this would be in contrast to saying, oh, what I want is the flowers. So I'm going to go to the point on the stem where above there it's all flowers and just clip it right there. Right. And now, now the entire plant has lost all of its reproductive capacity. Right. Yeah. 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 So those kind of considerations can make um, make a really big difference in in the impact that you're going to be having uh, on those plants, and and that has to be part of what you consider um, as you think about whether to wildcraft at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. really importantly, I think it to just be clear that none of this is about guilting or shaming anyone for things that they've that they're doing now or for things that they've done in the past. 
it is just about recognizing that we're at a time in history, I don't know, in current events, we're, we're at a time right now when we need to reevaluate. Um, and I, this time comes all of the time. Like we yeah. always need to reevaluate is what I was doing last week, actually still working for me. Like, uh, Hey, does it really work for me to skip breakfast? I don't know. Maybe I should try eating some breakfast. Like that's the thing we reevaluate all the time. So, um, this is a time to reevaluate how we, we as the entire herbal community and also we as individual herbalists, um, how as we grow, we, we might be or we are in fact having a detrimental impact on the plants that we love. And what do we need to do to make sure that that does not happen or, or rather that that does not continue, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. We should also take a moment here to acknowledge that, um, indigenous practices and indigenous traditions were in large part already working this way. Um, That when colonizers came over to this continent, they found a great bounty and they thought that it was wild. They (laughs) thought that what they were seeing was just the way the forests grew over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that really wasn't the case at all. That um, this this whole hemisphere (laughs) from top to bottom uh, was pretty heavily cultivated and stewarded, but it wasn't done in the way that was recognizable, right? It wasn't cut everything down to the dirt and then start from there yeah. and grow up. It was what's already here, how can we interact with it and shape it and, you know, a process taking place over long generations, but uh, still stewardship, cultivation. You know, by... Intentional... And, and done by a population who was willing to like go to the plants instead of mm-hmm. I think about European agricultural practices as I am unwilling to move. And so all of the plants must be here with me and indigenous growing practices that, Oh, this is where I can find this plant growing. And so I will encourage it and nurture it so that we can be in relationship. And then over here is where I can find this other plant that I want to be in relationship with. That's where I can find that one. And so I will be in that relationship over there. And instead of saying, well, I am here and the things that I want must all also be here. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. so we didn't recognize uh, that, like, we didn't recognize what indigenous people were doing as farming practice because or as cultivation, because it didn't look like what was happening in Europe. And yet... Uh, that's absolutely what it was. Yeah. So we've we've um, given this reference before, um, but if this is a new concept to you, then a great place to start is the book 1491 mm. uh, by Charles Mann. Um, it really does give a much clearer picture of what the Western Hemisphere looked like before uh, white people showed up. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that you, that you can study now. Mm-hmm. Um and I think this is also a really good and important time to say that indigenous people are still here, right? <laughs> they're not all gone. They're not in the past. Uh, and and so this is something that we don't have to, like, imagine uh, or try to somehow recreate. Um, as a society that that is trying to learn to think about these things, we can recognize that there are people in existence right now, living with us right now, who have experience with these kind of practices 
And also, we don't even have to go and ask them to teach us. They are already putting that information out into the world, and they're already inviting us to be in conversation about this. We just have to accept that invitation. And um, so if you want to do that, some places that you can start, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a little bit to get you started. Hmm. If you Google indigenous land stewardship, a lot of really great organizations will come up. A lot of great information will come up. And that is a starting point for you to do research. Um, in your own area, if you, there is a, there is an app called Native Land. Yeah. And if you check that out, it will tell you whose land you live on, whose land you're on right now. Even if you're just visiting someplace, it, it knows where you are and it will tell you whose land you're on. And then it will link to um, information, like modern, current information about how to get in touch with those people. And so when you do that, I'm not saying that we should just go knocking on doors and say, hey, teach me everything you know about indigenous <laughs> land practices. That would be completely uh, rude and inappropriate. Yeah. But... Um, going to the websites of the indigenous peoples whose land you're on right now can often get you to, oh, look, this particular group is doing this thing and, um, it is, there's an open invitation to participate in that. And therefore I could go there and I could learn in the way that they want to be teaching it. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is also a really good time to educate yourself on the Australian Aboriginal fire management practices in the light of the, the wildfires in, I don't even want to call them wildfires exactly, because that implies that there was no human whatever. And there was, um, you know, but anyway, in Australia, I don't mean by arson, I mean by that colonizers abandoned the the um, fire management practices from Aboriginal cultures. Yeah. Um, so there's a which is a which is a recurring story. Yeah, that's true here too. <laughs> I mean, too. that's true. In, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just that right now there's a lot being written about it from the Australian perspective, and you don't have to be Australian to learn about it. Yeah. It's a good place to get started on Indigenous fire management practices, and then to like sort of take that and then look at it from where you are and see if you can find more about it in your area. But there's a really particularly good article about this on Indigenous X um, that we will link in the show notes uh, written by an Aboriginal man in Australia who is also a firefighter. So he is very well educated in Aboriginal fire management practices as well as Western fire management practices. And um, it's a phenomenal perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a number of great folks, if you happen to be on Twitter, um, there's a, a number of people doing really great work there. Um, so we'll, we'll link to these in the show notes, but Indigenous Land is a really great account to follow. Uh, Jin Danis is one, and Dan Dan Transient, um, and Indigenous X is also there as well. Mm -hmm. um, this is a tiny start, but yes. yeah. one way that, that you can make use of this. And even if you are a person who doesn't Twitter much or, or you've never used Twitter before, this is a really good reason to start. And you don't have to follow any, like you only have to follow the people that you want to follow. So you could just use Twitter as a way to learn more about indigenous um, perspectives, because this is a way that they want to be communicating mm. and that they want to be sharing. And it is a way that you can be receiving what they have to say and receiving their perspectives without like getting in their faces and, and being like inappropriate or whatever. You can just 
you know, because it's not, it, it's burdensome to, to carry the weight of like, well, I have to educate everyone about like my yeah. practices. Right, right. And, and this is a way that, that makes it a public forum. So uh, by starting with those uh, groups and people, it can give you a start of like, oh, okay, well, what are they talking about? And who are they talking to? And let me see who they're following. And um, so it's just a tiny start, but it, it will get you going. And since you're listening to podcasts <laughs> uh, at this very moment, you might also like to check out the podcast Medicine for the Resistance. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's maybe it for this episode. I think it is. Cool. So we'd love to hear feedback from you, of course. Um, if you have uh, thoughts or comments or, or ways that you work to make your herbalism sustainable, mm -hmm. especially, you know, down there at the, at the the in the dirt level, yeah. um, then... Uh, we can probably learn a lot from you too. Yeah, like, and that's the thing. Like, just share lots of ideas. Be open to ideas. Be excited when there are new ideas. Like, it's so, it's so, we're so busy, and and there's so much all of the time coming at us that sometimes new ideas um, feel invasive or feel hard to accept, and we feel closed off to new ideas um, and new ways of thinking. But if we imagine them, even just imagine them like a vacation from our normal way of thinking, from our like everyday way of thinking, and imagine them lightly and just say, oh, huh, I, I wonder if that's interesting. Let me think about that for a minute and, and just sort of go lightly into this, into our own thoughts, like not holding too tightly to the things that that we think are right um, and and sort of always being willing to, to think like, Huh. What if I thought differently? Would that would that be great? Would it not be great? If it's not great, that's fine. You tried it and it wasn't great, and now you can try something else. But it might be great. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It might be. A, <laughs> yeah. It'd be great. Nice. Okay then. So let's close up with some shout-outs. Yes. First to Jamie, who wrote to say she loves the pod, and to ask if we do web consultations. Yes, in fact, we do. And if you're interested in that also, then you can find more information about it at commonwealthherbs.com slash consultations. Yes. And uh, we'd be happy to help you out. And also to, um, oh man, these are two handles that I'm not sure how to pronounce. One is Kaylua, maybe? Kaylua. Yeah, oh. with lots of H's. Yeah. Um, and one is Chisetta Girl. Mm -hmm. uh, and both of them wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts, so thank you. And also, Kayluas' grandmother noted that, uh, no, wait, in her review, Kaylua noted that her grandmother just gifted her a copy of our book, Herbal Medicine for Beginners. And if you want to, if you're listening, shoot us an email at info at commonwealthherbs.com, and we will send you a fancy inscribed book plate. Nice. Okay, uh, to Jennifer and Monica, who were listening to the pod and heard about the Study Buddy discount and want to sign up for the Community Herbalist program together. Yeah, yeah. that's right. so cool. Yeah. If you want to study uh, with your friends, we totally recommend that. Uh, there is now information about our Study Buddy discount on each of the program pages. Um, and I will expand that, but it's, there's enough there to get you going and shows the different discounts for like two people and three people and groups of larger than that. Um, and you can always just email us directly also. Uh, so check that out. 
Yeah. Get a buddy and study. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, New Shoots After the Rain uh, wrote in to say they loved the Bone Broth episode and especially the resources in the show notes. Yeah. Well, hey, that's great. <laughs> you guys, Rin works really hard on the show notes um, to make them really great and uh, resourceful for you. So check them out. And then finally, uh, Corinne McVeigh, Wild Child Apothecary, The Locusts, and Honey uh, all told their friends about the pod on Instagram. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing. That really does help. Um, sharing is caring, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if you want to spread the herby goodness, you can share this podcast with folks who you know who would like it. Just send them a text, send them an email, tell them the next time that you see them over coffee or tea or whatever. Um, some of the podcast apps, you can literally just like click a little button and it will automatically send through your text message thing. Yeah. Um, it'll send them an episode. So do it. Yeah. yeah. Spread yeah. the herby goodness. <laughs> yeah. We really do appreciate it. Uh, cool. Okay. So that's it for this episode of the Holistic Arbalism podcast. We'll yes. be back next week with some more herby goodness. Yes. Until then. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Drink, drink some, some tea. tea. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you then. That's that. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.